0: Before the rings of power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth with your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coase.
1: Thanks everybody for joining us again this week as we continue our journey through the Silmarillion. My name is Jonathan Watson from TheOneRing.com, and I'm here along with Michael Grumbine. Hello. And Daniel Coates. Hey. And this week, we are on to Chapter 7 of The Silmarillion, of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor, kind of diving deep into the meat of it. So uh, I'm really excited to get started on this. I know Michael's really excited to get started on this, because this really feels like this is, this is the good stuff. This is well, where we really get is, into
2: it. This is the chapter about which the book is named. So we, yeah, right. we finally get to meet the Silmarils. Before we head into this chapter, we are going to
1: uh, do...
0: All that is gold does not glitter.
1: And this week, Michael has some difficult things that I'm certain I won't get right again. <laughs> so
2: it's all yours. All right. So for this week, the theme... For, the, um, for our, our uh, segment on all that is gold does not glitter, is magic. Magic. So, quote number one, two, three, and four are all about magic in some way, shape, or form. One of them is Tolkien. Here's the first quote. If you don't believe in magic, then you can't believe in reality. If you don't believe in magic, you can't believe in reality. All right, quote number two fairy is a perilous land and in it are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold quote number 3 the more truly we can see life as a fairy tale the more clearly the tale resolves itself into war with the dragon who is wasting mm-hmm. fairy land say that again the more the more truly we can see life as a fairy tale the more clearly the tale resolves itself into war with the dragon who is wasting fairyland. And finally, quote number four, all mirrors are magic mirrors. The commonest room is a room in a poem. When I turn to the glass. Hmm. All right. So one of those is Tolkien and you definitely know the other three authors.
1: Okay. All right. So, um, I'll I'll go first. I I feel like the last one, just the mirror thing, it makes me think of Lewis Carroll. Hmm. So uh, perhaps that's Lewis Carroll. Um, uh, The first quote, if you don't believe magic, then you can't believe in reality. That just doesn't sound like Tolkien to me. Uh, Too many contractions in that sentence. Um, (laughs) But I could be wrong. (laughs) Um, And... The third quote, the more truly we can see life as a fairy tale, the more clearly the tale resolves itself into war with the dragon who's wasting fairy land. Uh, I don't think Tolkien Tolkien would say that. It's just the whole, the fairy tale idea. I don't. That's not, that, that wasn't his approach. See life as a fairy tale. Uh, it, his, his approach was more sub-creation, not a fairy tale. So I'm going to go with number two. It sounds like something I've read in um, in On Fairy Stories, but I could be wrong fairies of perilous land, and in it are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. That's my guess.
2: So Jonathan guesses number two, trying to redeem himself. After many years. I think you've many months of failure. (laughs) You've got a number of them (laughs) right, so maybe we can get a a point counter above our heads someday in this podcast.
1: I don't know. Only if I'm winning.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Daniel. Uh, Just uh, to be boring, I'll, I'll also go with number two, that that sounds the most Tolkien-esque to me.
2: All right, you guys are correct. I have yes. failed to fool either of you for the first time. So, so, so if the other
1: ones, if you don't believe in magic, then you can't believe in reality. So that is Benjamin, I, well, it feels like
2: that's Benjamin Israeli, the oh. Prime Minister under Queen Victoria.
1: Interesting. That I would never have guessed. Oh, whatsoever.
2: Yep most probably the most um, famous prime minister in well churchill takes you know can, can give him a run for his money but in historically speaking anyway he's one of the more famous yeah. prime ministers for, oh for sure for sure yeah the more truly
1: we can see life as a fairy tale the more clearly the tale resolves itself into war with the dragon who is wasting fairyland wow um i don't I, I have no frame of reference for who said that either chesterton Chester.
2: yeah. yeah good job dan yeah so that is Chesterton, where he's he's saying that basically there is a dragon that's at war with the the, the thing that gives life, joy, and is worth living, which is the fairy aspect of the world. Hmm. So there's a dragon at war with the fair, with fairyland, and the more we see a, a life as a as a as a fairy tale, the more clearly we also see the enemy of the fairy tale.
1: Do you do you know is that which essay or book
2: that's from? I can't remember. Okay, just curious. That's curious. Um, I'm sure an internet right. search would well. re- yield the result, but anyway, most likely, maybe I can. And the last one, at the bottom. which was an odd one, that is actually George MacDonald. Oh, okay, uh,
1: yeah, that, that is an influence on Tolkien and Lewis too.
2: Yes, exactly. So Tolkien's one of Tolkien's big influences.
1: Yeah, I've never read him though, so it was <laughs> just a guess. He's worth reading. Uh, well, thanks, thanks. Uh, so the the line "Fairy is a perilous land, and it our pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold" is that from On Fairy Stories? It is, yeah, it is. So I think that's a, that's something we're going to have to go through at some point too, because it's a great it's a great essay, but it's very dense and it's very like, It's uh, it's something that felt it feels like you need to be taught it and then read through it a second or third or fourth time, kind of like Chesterton sometimes.
2: I'm um, a big fan of Socratic dialogues, and one of the best discussions I ever had about that was in college, Socratic dialogue style about
1: um, fairy stories. On fairy stories, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Michael. So. As we jump into uh, chapter seven of the uh, Silmarils, man, I got to get this right. Exactly, exactly what it's called. Uh, yeah, of the Silmarils and the, uh, the I, don't, I don't have it in front of me. And the <laughs> Unrest of the Noldor. Yes. I know the first part. All right. Of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor, which means that Dan, this is your chance to come up with
0: Dan's big thought.
3: All right. My big thought this week. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, in this chapter, you have Feanor crafting the Simarils, and presumably, at least he starts off with really, really good intentions. He he kind of has this sense of impending doom that something is coming, that the light is going to be extinguished, and he has to preserve and protect the light so that the light doesn't go out forever. And, uh, and you kind of see that when he, when he first does it, when he first crafts these gems to hold the light of the two trees, um, everyone is rejoicing. Everyone around him is excited and happy. Uh, Varda blesses the gems even and hallows them. Um, so everyone's happy. It's a good thing that he made these simarils. but then there's a, there seems to like there's a, there's a turn in Feanor that he goes from having this good intention to being puffed up with pride. I think Tolkien uh, writes something to the effect that his heart was fast bound on the things that he himself had made. It was like his pride in what he had made and what he had done. Um, he he uh, And then Tolkien all, in this chapter also describes how he, he would wear the cimmerils on his brow and he would go to banquets and kind of show them off but then he kind of starts going into a mode where now he's hiding them. Now he's putting them in the vaults. Now he won't, now he'll only show it to his dad and his sons and nobody else. So he went from having this thing that kind of blessed everybody to now this is mine. This is, this is just for me and mine and and nobody else's. Um, So I think Tolkien, I think his exact words are, he began to love the Simerils with a greedy love and then he also says something like he he forgot that the light that was inside those gems was not his own Hmm. um so i I, there's there's some really deep uh waters there of 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 pride of arrogance of even with your good intentions now your 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 heart is being twisted and corrupted by the things that you've made um and uh go ahead i was just thinking that
2: it really does reveal a Tolkien is touching here on a theme, another theme that's mm-hmm. so, that, he, he, that happens over and over again, which is the creatures of Iluvatar, be they Valar, be they Eldar, be they men, they seek, be they dwarves, they seek to create. And when they create, almost invariably, if they create something beautiful and worthwhile, not almost invariably, but many times that there's a tension in the creation where if they grow they they can grow to love their own creation too much or Mm. even seek too much the the desire to create like melkor like Aule, even even though he repents of it um Mm. there's a there's this natural tension between what is good in that they're imitating their creator in creating new things in this case the silmarils with feanor and this this dark side of creation which is that you're drawn to love your work the work of your hands more than you ought and mm-hmm. it creates issues so i that's interesting but i, I do think we should also talk about the symbols themselves because the description he gives is just gorgeous i love it's, mm-hmm. they're beautiful and it's kind of the height and um, we, we learned in the previous chapter about on um, the other gems that um, feanor created the runes and writing that he created um, and the palantiri that he created these are the greatest though you and he said it says as three great jewels they were informed, these are the Sumerals. but not until the end, that's capital E, end when Feanor shall return who perished ere the sun was made, and sits now in the halls of Awaiting and comes no more among his kin, not until the sun passes and the moon falls shall it be known of what substance they were made. These are the Silmarils. Like the crystal of diamonds it appeared, and yet more strong than adamant, so that no violence could mar or break it within the kingdom of Arda. Yet that crystal was to the smerels, but as the body, as is the the body to the children of Eluvitar, the house of its inner fire that is, that is within it, and yet in all parts of it, and is mm. its life. So you have these how the housing of the smerels, which is the gems themselves, which are so strong, stronger than diamond that they cannot, they're 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 literally indestructible. Like, even the Valar can't can't destroy the smerels. Mm. So the, the idea that a child of Iluvatar, the an elf, created something greater even in its at least in its in its imperishability than than what the Valar can create is is fascinating but that that wasn't the best part of it the best part was the light from the two trees which you already mentioned dan
1: it's interesting to me that the 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 way tolkien describes them is as living things Mm. um and that uh They rejoiced in light. And if I'm reading that right, it says, and yet, as they were indeed living things, they rejoiced in light and received it and gave it back in hues more marvelous than before. So they being the Silmarils, they rejoiced. There was a, there was even a, an emotional quality to the light.
2: Yep. I think we got to be careful with the wording. It says, and yet, as were they indeed living things, they rejoiced in light and received it and gave it back in hues more marvelous than before. I flipped the words. So, well, no it's easy to do. Um but it's so he's he's deliberately teasing you with this idea that they're almost living. They're almost it's almost like they're living.
1: Kind of like the one ring. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean that and that's the subject of so many great debates is to what extent does the ring have a will of its own to what yeah. to what extent is it is it a semi-living thing almost like a virus? That's my theory. It's more like a virus mm-hmm. than a than a than a truly living thing. But um anyway, it's it's uh it, it's fascinating these these are the good version of the one ring <clears throat> and they okay. remain good and they remain good they throughout they the do. entire book the silmarils themselves are never corrupted um the people that seek them are often corrupted but not the silmarils
1: and the first person who seeks that is melkor mm. ultimately outside of, well i mean like you said dan faenor lusted he himself lusted after them and he jealously held them after you know after displaying them on his brow, like you said, uh, but Melkor uh, lusted for the Silmarils, and the very memory of their radiance was a gnawing fire in his heart. Fire again, man! I didn't realize how often fire becomes a—you know—it's—it's it's either a great thing that gives light or something that gnaws at you and burns you up. That's uh, right. But for him, it—he—it it, it burned him up, and—and uh, cool. and that's what you, it prompted him to. Uh, like, like he wrote, dissemble his purposes with cunning and nothing of his malice could yet be seen in the semblance that he wore. And I think my favorite line in this entire chapter is the, the next two sentences where, or really the next sentence where Tolkien writes, but he that sows lies, as Melkor was doing with, within the uh, the Noldor, but he that sows lies in the end shall not lack of a harvest. And soon he may rest from toil indeed while others reap and sow in his stead. And what a great way of encapsulating what he did with a Noldor, whereas he was, he was sowing all the lies and he was laying the groundwork for the destruction coming, but he didn't, uh, he set it in motion, but he didn't keep turning the gears, right? It was the Noldor. So they kept reaping uh, and sowing in his stead because he started, he planted all those seeds. I love the way he puts that in one short sentence, so succinct, but with so much I don't know, with, with so much power.
2: Uh, I did my favorite line in the whole, the whole chapter. Yeah, it's gorgeous, gorgeous prose. As you hmm. know, you see, you find these gems, pun intended, I guess, in this particular chapter. You find these, <laughs> these gems in Tolkien. That's bad. Um, sorry, that's, it's bad. Sorry, I'm a, a dad. Tolkien so I, dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> so if you listen to this podcast, you got to deal with the occasional dad joke. <laughs> since it's a podcast from three dads. So <laughs> so it, you, you're, you're right that now, so the, the chapter transitions from the creation of the Silmarils to now what Melkor, and Melkor's first his lust for the Silmarils and then his sowing of the lies continuing on from the very end of the last chapter. And these lies take root, and um, his lie, what struck me about it was his, his primary lie, like all the best lies, is built around a kernel of truth. And that is the lie that, um, well, it's a, it's a, well, let's start with the truth. The truth that the Valar had withheld the knowledge of men from the Elves, so so the Elves didn't know about the coming of the second of the of the children of Iluvatar, second born, and so Melkor reveals it to them and says, you know, this is a sign the Valar are withholding this from you. Um, and, and because they, they seek to make you thralls, essentially, because the men will come and supplant you. Um, and so he tells them this lie, which is this kernel of truth, start, starts with the kernel of truth, which is the Valar didn't tell them about the, the coming of the men. And um, then that blossoms and is harvested, reaped, and harvested um, to create what is ultimately the first. Um, direct conflict first it results in the elves built um making arms and armor for the first time so that n- arms and armor had never been made uh, presumably without you know the, the arms that one would hunt with i guess the implements of hunting would be an exception to that but hmm. but uh strictly speaking um tools for hunting are not um can only be they can be used as weapons but they're not designed um as weapons of war where one or a where one rational being is fighting another rational being so so i so i guess you you we have the creation of weapons weapons and arms and then that eventually leads to the strife between feanor and his brother fingolfin i don't know if we want to talk about that
1: yeah well uh, it's melkor who encourages the noldor to build the arms to build the the weapons of war uh and That's right. uh swords axes and spears do, do they talk about how ha- how and helms at all? I don't, helms uh, only not, helms not only. Halberks. Tall Helms with plumes of red. Yeah. So he does that, which uh, is also a weapon of war in the sense that you're defending yourself, knowing that somebody's going to be fighting against you. So it's not just that, but yeah, this is where, uh, uh you know, Finway was troubled and he summoned all his lords to council. And then Feanor comes in and he says, uh, so it is, even as I guessed my half brother would be before me with my father because, uh, Fingolfin was there, right? He was already talking with his father and and so he takes out his swords and he sticks it in this nice cinematic moment right into his chest like not not like he he pokes him and he doesn't like run him through um but he says my half-brother would be before me with my father in this as in all other matters then turning upon from and he drew his sword crying get thee gone and take thy due place uh and that that sort of that statement is the is the reaping of the lies of of melkor right there Hmm. where where turning turning the you know brothers against each other, turning the Noldor against each other, and then ultimately all the Eldor against themselves.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's you know that that scene right after what you read, it's interesting. He uses the language of Melkor. Uh, Fionor uses the language of Melkor. He says, "This, see, half brother, this is sharper than thy tongue." That's he's using. He's putting his sword against his chest. Try but once more to usurp my place in the love of my father, and maybe it will rid the Noldor of one who seeks <sighs> to be the master of thralls. Oh, so. to to refer and to fanor, define
1: a thrall would be a slave,
2: right? Right. Mm. So for a fanor to refer to his own people as thralls, because he's 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 accusing his half brother of usurping him and trying to become the master of thralls, um, means that he's using the language of Melkor, who tried to convince the the Noldor that um, the Valar wanted them all to be thralls. So so even though no doubt Fanor would would bristle at this at this um, realization. He's, in fact, absorbed the lie of Melkor um, in his own accusation against his brother.
3: Yeah, it's interesting to me at, the, at this moment, it, it's, it, you know, they, they haven't quite fallen. If we're, we're going back to that Genesis analogy that we often go back to, like if this is Tolkien's Genesis, they haven't quite had like their original sin and fallen into sin yet. But you still feel like this, this is the kind of like the Cain and Abel moment. Of brother against brother, they're 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 raising armies. They have armor and weapons. What do they need weapons for? They're they're in the blessed realm. They're basically in the Garden of Eden, right? Exactly. And they're, they're they're raising these armies and and weapons and, and military might. And you have one brother. Like how outrageous is that to, to have someone like stick their sword in their brother's chest? Like it's just so crazy to me.
1: <laughs> right. And similarly, there were no really no weapons in the Cain and Abel story until. Cain slew Abel, mm-hmm. uh and there there was nothing to do that and so here we also have the weapons being constructed for the first time in a uh in a brother versus brother duel
2: so in a uh, in an uh, in, a, in a manner unlike their usual mo the Valar in this particular instance respond very quickly so usually they take their time responding, but this, but this time, this time. So,
1: so, so we, we're going to have to have a whole video of the Valar sins, right? We're going to yeah. have a counter <laughs> yeah, where, yeah, yeah. That, where they had sins and where they had the positives and negatives. Yeah. I, the counter. I,
2: I like, I like that as a, as an additional content video because, because they've got some, they've got some sins to count up, but, but in this case, they very quickly bring, um, bring uh, Fanor to judgment and uh, summon him before the Valar, and um, standing before, it says, And Feanor, standing before Mondos in the Ring of Doom, was commanded to answer all that was asked of him. Then at last the root was laid bare, and the malice of Melkor revealed. And away Tulkas left the council to lay hands on him and bring him to judgment. So the first thing that happens is Feanor tells all the... Uh, it's interesting because Feanor just has accusations for his brother, but in front of the Valar, he has to tell the root of what these, where these came from. And it turns out that it's Melkor, and so immediately Tolkis, who's always itching to throw his hands, hands around Melkor's neck, um, heads off to do so. And we will find out that's unsuccessful. But um, but Feanor, um, it says, but Feanor was not held guiltless, for it was he, for he it was that had broken the peace of Alinor and drawn his sword upon his kinsman. And so to to stop there for a second, referencing what you said, Dan. Interestingly enough, that act of drawing his sword. That seems like a sin there, right? And he's, mm-hmm. he, he's going to, he, so, so on a personal level, Feanor has in fact sinned um, because he's, he's, you can argue one way or another about the creation of arms that aren't used against anyone. But when he draws his sword against his brother without cause or defense or need for defense, then that's a sin and the Valar treated as such because they punish him for it. Mm. And uh, Mandos says to him, <laughs> this is Mandos sort of mocking his own words against his brother. Mando says, Thou speakest of Thraldom. If Thraldom it be, thou canst not escape it, for Manway is king of Arda, and not of Amun alone. So he's saying essentially, (laughs) you know, if, if, if the, your definition of thralldom is just, you know, having to live under the rule of another person, then guess what? You're, you're always going to be a thrall, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's a thrall, if that's your definition. He's the king of the world. <laughs> that's right. Um, but then he says, and this deed is unlawful. Was unlawful whether in Amun or not in Amun. And then so he he's, he's sentences him to essentially um, leave the city of the elves, Tyrion, and um, live alone. Or at least live with his own, only his own small household, um, for twelve years, which seems like a harsh penalty to us, maybe as humans, for twelve years for just drawing your sword and pointing it at your brother's chest. But um, for elves who live forever, twelve years is not Mm -hmm. that much. Certainly not the three ages of something that. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) More about about in the last episode. Yeah. (laughs) I like this
3: picture. I like this picture of the Valar being like the lazy dad who's hanging out in the garage all day. (laughs) <laughs> uh, they're the, 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 like hey dad you know they're they're raising armies over there he's like ah oh, whatever i don't care <laughs> and then all of a sudden like bam someone gets punched in the face or something it's like, okay now i'm gonna get involved now i'm gonna do something
1: yeah yeah
2: get between the neighbor kids yeah <laughs> that's right so what's been going on well my friend said. My neighbor said this, and uh, <laughs> oh, your neighbor said that, did they? <laughs> you just, it, yeah. The, the the analogy you could build with the, uh, yeah. the dad correcting as, his children.
1: As long as it's your son that says, "I will release my friend," as Finn Golfin here says to to Mendoz that he will release his brother after twelve years uh, from the uh, from the sins that he caused.
2: Right, and Finn Golfin's an interesting character, as we'll see down the line. You know, he's he's got a lot of nobility. He's got some of the flaws of the Noldor. He's got, but he's, but one of his flaws is not resentment. So he shows clearly in this passage that, um, then, and, and in another place, um, very soon that it's he his he's instantly um, ready to forgive uh, his brother or uh, for the for the attack against him um, or any slights against him. So, yes. the, so the next the next section is Melkor fleeing, and he turns into a cloud. And there's an interesting passage right. there when it says, "He hid himself and passed from place to place as a cloud in the hills, and off him in vain." Um, but it isn't just that he takes the form of a cloud, but he somehow affects all of Valinor in doing all so. the light. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, it's because it says, "Then it seemed to the people of Valinor that the light of the trees was dimmed, and the shadows of all standing things grew longer and darker in that time." And at first, you might think, "Well," They're just thinking that because they realize they've been deceived, the Noldor have been deceived, and it's like a, it's just kind of a psychological effect. But we find out later that when Melkor, in form of a cloud, passes south and leaves Valinor to hide in the south, um, that, that the light of the trees brightens again. So it's actually an, an effect from him, his physical form at that point, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I'm trying to find the line. I think it was in the previous chapter where they actually, where, where Tolkien actually writes that Melkor was essentially the strongest of all the Valar, um, mm. and that would seem to uh, uh, be true if he's actually affecting the light of the trees in his passing, right? Uh,
2: in his uh, retreat, right. in a sense, from and, it's, uh, and, it, and, it, and it's somehow taking that form of a cloud does does that too. It's really he must be exerting his power in some way to dim the light of the land around him. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then where does he go? He goes back to Feanor because he can't, because the, the fire of the, the Silmarils is gnawing inside of him. Right. And so I love Feanor's line after he's trying to say, um, uh, you know, that the Valor are going to take it from him and that, uh, that, you know, Hey, I've, I've been a friend the whole time and I'm the most skilled and, you know, and, and you should, you should, you should let me, you know, let me, let me help you out because, because I was there to help you earlier. And he's, he says, get thee gone from my gate thou jail crow of mandos just, <laughs> it's awesome like he 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 says this to the most powerful being essentially on the face of the planet and right. slams the door in front of him <laughs> and yep. melkor departs in shame like he wh- when tolkien says Fëanor was the strongest of all the elves that had ever lived like this, this is like i think example number one where he just slams the door in the face of uh <laughs> of melkor the strongest of all of the
2: Valar. exactly the line is and he shut the doors of his house in the face of the mightiest of all the dwellers yeah, in there it AI. is yeah.
1: yeah yeah okay so it was <laughs> in this chapter i just missed it and missed the next line yep
2: yeah, yeah. It's, it's great just this his prose is so crisp um and, and covers so much ground in this small amount of time sometimes in terms of writing not just narrative but motivations and helping you understand some of the deeper issues yeah it's it's fan- fascinating i always was fascinated by um <laughs> the victim, the, the, um, I don't know what you want to call it. What is it when, um, a person who's punished transfers their dislike of uh, their punishment to the person that actually carries it out? You see it a lot with people growing to hate police officers, for example, hmm. um, where, where there's a, so, so fanor does this with Mandos, like Mandos only speaks, the judgment of Manway, like this, is distributive justice model, right? So Manway has a judgment. Mandos speaks it, and he only speaks in judgment when Man when Manway is that that's, that, that's Manway's thought and judgment. And so, um, but Feanor blames him, and then so said. Now Feanor's heart was still bitter at his humiliation before Mando's. Um, and he, and he looks at Melkor in silence and he, then he accuses Melkor of being the jail crow of Mandos. So he's like sort of attaching every, all of his ire to Mandos, yeah. which is no,
1: like the old don't blame the
2: messenger. Right. Well, don't he's definitely him. blaming the messenger. Yeah. yeah and, cool. uh, but he, interestingly, he does it because he perceives clearly the mind of Melkor, like he sees through his form and perceives that Melkor just desires the similar rules So, he yeah. hates him. so he hates him. So then, um, then, then off Melkor goes as a thunder cloud and then escapes to the south. And it's, that, that was the line I was looking for before. It says, thus Melkor departed from Valinor. And for a while, the two trees shone again, unshadowed and the land was filled with light. So once he leaves the land in cloud form, clear again, we get light again, or yeah. at least unshadowed light.
1: Yeah. For a little while until the next chapter though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one thing, um, that like maybe my final thought, and I'll I'll get to you what your guys's final thoughts would be. My final thought is um, one of the things that's been talked about is uh, Galadriel a lot because of the Rings of Power, uh, the show Amazon show, coming out. And in the very the very first line of uh, this chapter, uh, Tolkien writes that um, Feanor was filled with a new thought, or maybe that some shadow of foreknowledge came to him. Of the doom that drew near right and they're talking about foreknowledge which was something galadriel had which uh, tolkien talks about with her right she had uh she was able to essentially have an idea of things to come um uh, and there is some debate uh, tolkien explicitly states that Galadriel was the most powerful uh elf after feanor um but other people don't think so other people think other people have and so I, I think maybe this is a part of it and it's it's not in swords it's not in big hilts it's not in being able to grab a dagger jab it into some ice and climb a glacier uh, that uh, it's in the foreknowledge it's in the the power that she was able to have to uh, protect and to influence people and to influence in a good way and to perceive the mind of the enemy uh, and I think or and 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 the mind of the enemy and the the mind of uh I think also her uh you know her friends in that knowing what was good and right and the the, the best thing to do in order to protect the elves and to protect the Elven Kings that was that was her strength. That was like and so that's why she knew she had to go to Lorien to help protect uh Eregion from the assault of uh, uh uh Sauron as much as she could. Anyway, just the thought of like the foreknowledge being a really important thing when it comes to the power that you have as an elf. So
2: Right. No, there's there's a connection. If you have foreknowledge, you are connected with the song of creation. Ooh, I like that. I hadn't um,
1: thought about it in those terms.
2: So so I mean that's Mandos' ex- express realm is being connected with the song to the extent where he knows everything that's happened and will happen except for the 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 relatively small number of things. Um, that Iluvatar direct, takes a direct hand in, and, and it is according to Iluvatar's direct choice. Um, and so, uh, the fires of the secret fire that burns within Feanor, I, I think, to build on your point, Jonathan, is is connected with his foreknowledge. Mm. Like this is a the, the mm. fire of creation, and the fire and the connection with the song of of um, that of, of the world, song of Arda that created all, um, that Iluvatar used to create all. Um, that the, these are interconnected, and Fanor yeah. has that, and so does Galadriel. With her, with her, her um, she also has foreknowledge and that gift. And what we can talk later about Galadriel's power when yeah. she comes up, because she actually has raw power too, which is shown in some of the things that Sir Tolkien says in appendices. Not just wisdom, power of wisdom and foreknowledge, but she definitely has those yeah. things too. Yeah. Um, but by raw power, I'm not talking about the ability to swing a sword. I, I would actually <laughs> contend following the reading of the Silmarillion that, and we'll, we can get back to this, that actually Feanor was not in fact the greatest warrior elf either. He was the most powerful elf ever, but I bet you his half brother in his height could have bested him. His half brother who ends up, well, never mind. We won't, we won't do spoilers, but, but um, in terms of pure sword play and as a warrior, but, Fingolfin, you mean, but... yes, Fingolfin yeah. is what I'm talking about. So I guess technically there's a lot, of, there's a number of half brothers, but yeah, I'm talking about Fingolfin. Um, so, so yeah, there, there's there's so many more ways to be powerful than just swinging a sword. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: All right. So that was my final thought. Dan, uh, Michael, do you have one of you guys have a final thought as well?
3: I'll, I'll count what I just said as my final thought. All right. All right. <laughs> I guess if I have a final thought, it's you know, it's coming from somebody who's seen the Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson trilogy probably twenty or thirty times. Probably <gasps> um, my. My impression of elves from those movies is that they are—they're they're so hoity-toity. They're high. They're—they're they're noble. They're good. They're just a pure good all the time, and they—they they always have like this air of—they're oh. like
1: the Nancy Pelosi to the Ted Cruz. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, they.
2: But, That's not going to get anyone in trouble ever.
3: They're 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 basically like, "Oh, men, no, men are trouble. They're all about fighting, they're all about wars, they're all about uh, they they have all these problems. Don't get involved with the affairs of men." But reading the and you're like, "Bro, look, look at what you guys are doing. Look what you guys did to yourselves. Like like so so you see them raising armies in the blessed land. You got you got one guy pointing a sword at the other guy and it looks like in later chapters it's going to get worse and worse but it gets worse it's like bro like look at yourself like so i don't know i don't know maybe maybe that's a peter jackson invention or maybe maybe that's something i didn't pick up in lord of the rings it just it just just my my picture of elves before reading the cimmerillion was like oh man elves are great they're so cool and they're so good all the time and reading this i'm like oh that maybe not so much like (laughs)
1: So yeah, our, with, with with the elves in Peter Jackson, you need to have the uh, the warm synthesizer sound, sound playing in the background all the time. Yeah. And the, <laughs> and, and,
2: yeah. Well, while, while I don't think the uh, the elves in Tolkien's world in the time of Lord of the Rings are perfect, there's a few examples we could give of elves that may make, make mistakes. They don't display the gravity of flaws that, that he's focusing on in the Silmarillion. So, mm, so yeah. by the time, and, and I might even make a further point, Building on what you said, Dan, to just say the elves, especially the Noldor that are left in the time of Lord of the Rings, you could probably make a case that you could they say that those survivors have learned a lesson, a hard, long lesson. And they are, in fact, enlightened in a way, in ways and sort of above the affairs of men in ways that that I don't think Jackson got it totally wrong on. Mm. Um, But but these are these are a different this is a different time and the elves have yet to learn from their unnumbered tears, the the ways that that uh, the mistakes that could they can make. So mm -hmm.
1: don't worry, we'll see so much of that in the Rings of Power coming (laughs) Amazon Prime, (laughs) where they compress eighteen hundred years down to a few seasons. It's gonna be great.
3: You got to give it a chance. It it might be good. You don't know, Right. right? (laughs)
1: might might be uh we will have a chance chance. wasn't that wasn't that a quote from dumb and dumber so yeah
2: so you're telling me there's a chance yep i give it about the same chance as uh as the dumb and dumber movie
1: yeah yeah well if you want to see our thoughts on that go to our youtube channel if you're not already watching this on youtube because we do have some thoughts on that it's yeah we'll see Hey, I'll, I'll watch it and I'll probably like parts of it. And, you know, I mean, if I hated the fellowship of the ring when I saw it coming out of the theaters, I can only imagine what I'm going to feel like coming out of this one. So, uh, yep. not that I, I don't hate fellowship of the ring anymore by Peter Jackson, but I have my issues still with
2: it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we're going to have fun, you know, watching it and yeah. probably have plenty of reactions uh, to it. So that'll, that'll be fun for sure. For sure. All right. So
1: next week we are on to chapter eight which is of the darkening of Valinor, where we get to see more of this crazy cloud and other darkness coming over. Uh, yeah. Grand um, I mean, villain number two makes yeah, their appearance. Yeah, I'm excited. I love that part. But before we do that, let's head over to...
0: If you like Tolkien.
1: And I think, Michael, this week, you
2: might have something behind yeah. you. So, yeah, it's, it, it is behind me. Um, I don't know how good my video quality is, but it's a little bit of a cottage industry um, amongst... Uh, uh, Folks that are fans of Tolkien, and I will I'll, I'll get it right here. Cool. So this is a gift that I got, and so I don't I can't tell I can't say who the exact maker is. Um, it was made by Nancy Shop in Eastern and Europe.
1: If you're listening, this is a pipe. This actually. is a pipe,
2: a carved pipe with a beautiful tree of uh, Gondor on it, and it it and despite the fact that it looks fancy, it is also an excellent pipe. It has a good draw. It's a churchwarden oh. style, and um, it was given to me as a gift. Uh, I cannot comment on the um, potential breaking of copyright or lack thereof, since I'm not a lawyer and I don't know how to even play one on TV. I so, think half of
1: Etsy is breaking copyrights, <laughs> right? I think I we're think, okay.
2: I think most of Etsy, perhaps, yeah. is yeah. copyright violation of some <laughs> kind or another. But uh, but anyway, it's a beautiful pipe, and there's there the um, the uh, there's a there's a whole, uh, as I said, cottage industry of craftsmen out there that that make some beautiful stuff that are floor of the Rings themed. Yeah.
1: So. I need to get me one of those. I'll, I'll try and find one, put a link in the show notes to that. But that's that's pretty sweet. I only I mean, I only have Tolkien books back here. I don't want to get any of this third party crap. That, I mean, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey. Yeah, so cool. Uh, I, 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 plus, I, I can't ever keep a pipe lit for the life of me. That's so why I just stick with cigars when I do. So. Well, I'm convinced. Right I, I think
2: I've told people before that I've, you know, especially in the cigar group, I'm convinced that that the the reason that pipe smoking is so difficult is is basically it makes it the most the most healthy of all the smoking habits that we have because <laughs> you you work so hard to get so little nicotine in your body. <laughs> yeah, you're
1: you're working harder to keep it lit than doing anything else. Exactly. So you're just exerting yeah. all this energy and sweat and
2: tears. But, but you know what? It looks really good when you got it lit. Yeah,
1: yeah, especially when it looks like something that Gandalf or um, the character, a new character in the Rings of Power would have smoked. I got to stop with the Rings of Power, things. All right. So next week, that's good. So Pipes, we'll put a, put a link in the, in the show notes, uh, or in the, or below in, in YouTube. Uh, but next week we'll do of the Darkening of Valinor. Uh, and we get to meet, like Michael said, the big baddie number two, uh, for the first time and almost the last time, uh, in this, uh, in this book, it's gonna be great. So till next week, we'll see you then.
0: Michael, Dan, and Jonathan want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. Visit us at TheOneRing.com, your source for everything Tolkien, where you can comment on this episode and join the conversation. This is Austin Robertson bidding you farewell. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks.